Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Salma Musa. Salma is a PhD candidate at Stanford, and in the fall is going to be taking on a postdoctoral position also at Stanford, looking at uh, a range of really interesting forces playing out from her a really fascinating PhD. I wanted to talk to Salma today because she's been doing some really interesting work concerning social cohesion after conflict and, and doing a lot of interesting reflections on, on how to facilitate social cohesion. Her work was featured on a PBS special and I thought it would be wonderful to, to hear some of, her, some of her reflections in terms of peace building and conflict transformation. So Salma, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I, I really enjoyed the stuff that you've been doing recently, and I think we've got a lot to learn from, from you and, and the work that you're doing. I guess I should start just before we even discuss, um, discuss you and, and your work by saying that I guess most of the people who are listening to this podcast are predominantly based outside of the U.S. and and tend to deploy more of a European style of doing international relations, more based on qualitative work rather than quantitative work. So I think there's some really interesting uh, points of difference intellectually, uh, ontologically and epistemologically. So I'm really looking forward to hearing some of the some of the things that you've been doing. But Salma, can you start by just telling us a little bit about how you got interested in in academia and in politics and what started you on this journey, please? So I had a bit of a, a, a mixed background, I guess, growing up, kind of bouncing all over the place. So I was born in Cairo, but lived mainly in Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE, and then did my undergraduate uh, degree in Qatar. And that experience, I guess, of living in the Gulf in kind of a tumultuous time in the 90s and early 2000s, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. And as a kid, you don't really pay too much attention to it. It just becomes part of your life. Uh, But then as you get older, you start to think, oh, this is this is kind of interesting what's been happening here and kind of devastating in a lot of ways to have these, um, these threads of sectarianism and um, sometimes violence and, you know, why does this happen where we are? Um, and not to say that the Middle East is like particularly exceptional in this regard. There's violence that happens everywhere, but this affected me so personally, like from the, from the Gulf War to the um, Riyadh compound bombings. And so those incidents together that, shaped a lot of my personal life made me really curious to um, to learn more about this, I guess, uh, and hope to take my experience to to add something to our understanding of these kinds of phenomena. Fantastic. Was there a particular thing that um, that, that prompted this interest or was it just a, culmin- uh, a culmination of, of bouncing around, as you put it? There was a lot of the bouncing around and being exposed uh, to different contexts. Uh, But I'd say I'd say one relationship, uh, if I'm really reflecting on what made me interested in the question of social cohesion in particular, uh, my best friend growing up, uh, who's still my best friend, (laughs) is uh, a Coptic Christian, also from Egypt. Right. And. I kind of got to see the world through her eyes and through her family's eyes in a lot of instances. 
And um, some of what I saw was really disturbing. And that kind of got me thinking like, well, we always kind of associate our Egyptian identity, our Arab identity with Islam, and rightly so, they're, they're interconnected and it's part of the social fabric. Uh, but there are these really important minority groups who have just as much as a stake in this national identity and are just as much a part of the social fabric. Mm. Um, and yet they have a very different lived experience. Uh, and so this got me thinking, like, there there just must be a way to improve this situation. Like, sure. everyone wins if all of us do better in our own countries. Uh, so yeah. that kind of opened my eyes a little bit. That's that's really interesting. Can we, if it's okay with you, because I realize this is quite a personal thing, but could you just share a little bit about looking at looking at Egypt and Cairo through your, your best friend's eyes from that that Coptic perspective, how did it differ from your own position as, as, a, as a Muslim in Cairo? Sure. Um, so it differed in a lot of um, kind of in positive ways. So things like, you know, how we celebrate and what days we have off and when, when do we fast. And so in that sense, like we were very similar uh, and we just celebrate things in different ways. So Egyptians in general are more on the religiously conservative side, and it actually doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Christian in that regard. So obviously there's a lot of similarities there. Um, and when we support our national football team, that's when you really, <laughs> that's when you see probably the most national unity out of anything. Uh, like when I was at the World Cup in Russia, I went with a kind of a mixed group of friends and it was very obvious there. Like the Egyptian supporters, like the religion just does not come into it. But then I also saw um, kind of some disturbing things. So one anecdote that sticks in my mind is when her um, her family's housekeeper, who had worked uh, who had worked with them for like more than a decade, at that point, um, at one day she just said, "I have to quit um, because people and our people in my, who are talking to my husband through these various networks are." Uh, telling him that it's like haram, like it's forbidden for me to work for a Christian house. Right, and okay. like I have to like wash my hands before I touch your stuff and like things like this. And this really shocked me that there in my own country, like this kind of experience could be happening where someone says, I have to wash my hands, you know, before uh, after I touch you and like I can't work at your house. I mean, this is um, so obviously this is kind of an extreme case. Uh, so I don't want to generalize too much from it. But the fact that this happens at all suggests for me like this is at least worth taking a taking a look at it and it does align with some more serious incidents that we hear about as well right yeah that's that's really interesting and and deeply deeply depressing of course for for many reasons (laughs) so just think about the football part (laughs) yeah i i am doing and i'm also picking up on something reading your your work from your website salma you don't call it football do you you call it soccer (laughs) <laughs> I was wondering if you'd pick up on that. I have picked up I, on I don't that. have yeah. a deep philosophical perspective on this. I'm just catering to whoever I think like the median reader is going to be. Okay. Well, I think it, it's a nice segue into perhaps your your PhD study. If we if we jump a little bit from your time in Qatar to your your PhD and to the study of of social cohesion and and all of the things that we want to talk about. Can you tell us a bit about about the project, what it is that you're trying to do, and and how you ended up looking at football? And I'm sorry, I, I can't call it soccer. <laughs> That's but... okay. I forgive you. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so I, I've always been interested in this question of social cohesion. What does it look like? How can we measure it? And more importantly, how can we build it? Um, and I gravitated towards the contact hypothesis. So this uh, hypothesis from the 1950s, it was originally looking at uh, desegregating U.S. schools. And the idea was that positive, cooperative contact across social lines can reduce prejudice and it can build friendships. And on the whole, it can improve intergroup relations. Uh, but this, not just any old contact will do. Uh, so if you have a really negative interaction with someone, uh, that is probably not going to do the job. In fact, it may have a backlash. So the, there are a few conditions that are thought to be key for contact to really work. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are that it should involve cooperating for a common goal. And it should involve uh, that, that the participants uh, should have equal power an equal power status within the context of the intervention, even if they're, they don't have equal power status in society. And yeah. those are two of the key, uh, key conditions. And the third is actually that it should be endorsed by some kind of authority figure. Okay. So when I took those conditions together, like cooperating for a common goal, uh, like fundamentally equal power status, uh, endorsed by some authority figure, I thought this team sports just naturally tick a lot of these boxes. Yeah. Um, you can think of the authority figure as a captain or a coach. Um, you, there's a fundamentally equalizing effect of sports. It's non-hierarchical in, in, in football outside of the captainship. Uh, and of course, if you're playing on the same team, you're cooperating for, for the same goal. Uh, so for me, this was like a great way to test this idea. Um, and I happen to also love football. It's just one of my passions. So the fact that I could kind of bring together my, my, my interest in social cohesion and my passion for football and, uh, try to actually test this idea, uh, in a more rigorous way was really exciting to me. Amazing. I love it. I've been trying to do the same thing for years now and I've not quite managed it. So I'm very jealous that you figured out an intellectual way to bring together two of your passions. So Mabruk, um, it's very impressive. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> so I, I should at this point, before we go into the uh, into the, the nitty gritty of it, which is absolutely fascinating, I have two two questions. I mean, one is, um, who is your football team? And I, I'm curious about this. Uh, just to see if my assumption might be right. But also, this this method that you're using, it strikes me that it, it's quite a normative project. Would that be fair to say that it looks like it's trying to to make the world a better place? It's, it's concerned with improving things rather than purely testing assumptions, rather, which is, it strikes me, going against some of the traditional... Um, quant approaches in political science. Is that is that fair to say, or am I missing the point of this? The, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting pushback. I'd say the um, I'd say even just from a purely objective academic standpoint, um, social trust is thought to be uh, important for social development, political development, economic development, a whole range of. Um, like democratic outcomes. So I'd say even from like a purely academic perspective, social cohesion and social trust, uh, we know that that's generally a positive thing, or we're relatively sure that that's a pretty positive thing, at least correlationally speaking. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's worth it for its own sake. Um, and for, uh, from in terms of the kind of normative, <laughs> normative approach, I think we all probably have some normative biases that we don't often uh, like to talk about maybe in academia, um, but it just strikes me intuitively as being a, a net good if we can get people to get along better, 
given that they do live in the same area and they will be in that area for some time. Uh, it's just better if people can get along rather than not um, on a day-to-day interaction basis, but maybe for some of these broader outcomes as well. Uh, and in terms of who my football team is, I think I think your guess is correct. Okay. Uh, uh, so in the Premier League, I'm definitely a Liverpool fan. <laughs> um, and and pray tell, I'm why the would that be? National team as well. Why would you be a Liverpool fan, Selma? <laughs> why would I be a Liverpool fan? That's I mean Trent Alexander Arnold. He converted uh, me. Just was fantastic player, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I actually was kind of agnostic about the, not agnostic, but I wasn't really that attached to any particular team in the Premier League. I was just a neutral. Um, but watching Mohamed Salah just totally changed me. Like, for I followed him in Switzerland, I followed him at Chelsea, but he didn't really get a chance to play. And now at Liverpool, he's the star. And then I see that he's, you know, that this is obviously another paper I have with my fantastic co authors just about how exposure to Mohamed Salah has reduced Islamophobia among Liverpool fans. And so this was also a nice marriage of um, a passion for something, but also linking it to this social cohesion um, outcome, given that football is such an important part of people's lives, actually. It's a very salient identity for a lot of people. And there's been a lot of really interesting stuff done around around Mohamed Salah's engagement, not just with Liverpool, the club, but Liverpool, the city, um, having a, a really prominent role in transforming perceptions, and there's um, there's some songs that people chant at the at the ground at Anfield about converting to Islam and being a Muslim too. If Salah keeps scoring goals, the BBC did a documentary about this. So I, I'm really curious to see the uh, the paper when it's done. Yeah, uh, there's a working paper out now. If you're interested in it. Um... But this was the the chant that you're referring to when uh, Liverpool supporters were filmed saying, if he scores another few, I'll be Muslim too. That was really the trigger for the paper. Okay, interesting. Um, We just thought this is unusual. Um, Not to paint football fans with a broad brush, uh, but it's not always known for being the most cosmopolitan or open-minded of spaces among fan bases i think that's um and so to see this these kinds of this kind of reaction from fans was we just thought there must be something going on here like especially in this broader context of pretty rampant islamophobia in the uk yeah so um and so that's what we did we set about to test this idea and so we looked at hate crimes in Liverpool compared to, in Merseyside, I should say, compared to other counties. We looked at uh, Islamophobic tweets tweeted by Liverpool fans compared to fans of the other uh, big clubs in, in England. Uh, and we also did a Facebook survey of uh, eight or 9,000 Liverpool fans to try to understand some of the mechanisms. And using this kind of diff and diff and constructing Uh, or I should say, constructing this counterfactual of looking at very similar counties and similar fan bases before and after Salah joined the club, Mm -hmm. uh, it seemed that there's a very stark reduction in the number of, in the amount of Islamophobic tweets and in the rate of hate crimes uh, compared to to a similar counterfactual. Incredible. If you're happy for the working paper to be shared, then I'll certainly tweet it out and put it in the description of this podcast. So... Anyone Great. wanting more uh, more detail on this, check out the paper. Um, we we sort of got got pushed in a tangent because of my question about <laughs> football. So sure. uh, I mean it's it's really fascinating. But let let's go to the to the thesis project and the stuff that you've been doing on actually building this this project with regard to to adding 
um, different communal identities to football teams. So can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about the, the project design? How did you do it? Why did you do it that way? And, and what, was the, what were the responses like? Sure. Um, so the kind of cornerstone of my dissertation is, uh, or I should say was, it's finished now, a study on social cohesion and intergroup contact in northern Iraq. And the idea was to bring together uh, people from various communities, mainly Muslim and Christian communities who had all been hit very heavily by the ISIS occupation. Uh, and can we use uh, football and contact through football as a means for rebuilding the trust and tolerance that was lost between these communities? So even though they were all victimized by ISIS, that shared victimhood has not really done a lot to bring communities together. The overwhelming um, mood, I guess, is one of like social distrust, and it really devastated these relationships between communities. So uh, what I did was I was working with a local NGO and a really fantastic uh, local research uh, staff. And we were kind of doing focus groups and playing around like, you know, what should substantively, what should the backdrop of this intervention be? Like we know we're interested in contact, but that could be contact in a classroom. It could be in a lot of other settings. And through these focus groups, overwhelmingly, people were like, we want to play football. Amazing. Um, like we tried other things, actually. We first started with like literature classes and art classes and no one showed up, like not a single person. Wow, and these were okay. people in IDP camps who had a lot of free time and no yeah. one showed up. Uh, so we scrapped that idea and then we went with football and just the, the response was huge. Like there was clearly a lot of um, grassroots demand for some kind of organized league. Okay. Um, was it so just football, it, yes. Salma? Sorry. Was it just yes. football that they were interested in? Because I know that in other contexts, particularly in, in South Africa, there's there's been similar types of, of sport-based programs done with, with rugby, for example. But was this coming from from the the participants themselves that they wanted to play football exactly okay exactly um like like many other parts of the world football is the kind of predominantly popular sport in iraq uh to play and to watch yeah and uh there was already kind of an amateur some amateur leagues going on and some amateur teams that had been formed so all we really had to do was to invite these teams who already existed to say we're going to set up a new league um uh, but one of our goals is social inclusion, and we have this diversity mandate. And we want to make sure people from different communities are included. So even though these teams were pretty much all made up of one community, uh, we decided to we we wanted to mix them up essentially. And so okay. we got the participants' permission to do this. So your team is included, but we were we're going to add three or four players to your team, and they may or may not be from your same community. Uh, and so the study was looking at the effect of being randomly assigned to a mixed team as opposed to a team where only your co-ethnics were added and then training and competing together for a two-month uh, football league. Fantastic. What was the response from from the teams and, and the players that you then dropped into those teams where there was this, this sort of communal difference? <laughs> So initially, it was a lot of skepticism, I would say. Um, I mean, first, at the idea of having players added to your team. I mean, I think this was also, it's not necessarily a 
like a natural thing that would happen and you're competing yeah, in, a, in a league, you want to make sure you get someone good. Yep. Uh, so there was kind of a trade-off between what we wanted to study and keeping it be kind of a natural sports setting. Um, so this was one of those trade-offs. So I'd say at first there was a lot of hesitation when it came to absorbing new players in general. And I'd say that was um, intensified for players who were from other communities. People were kind of especially skeptical of that. Uh, so this is where we really worked with the coaches and worked with the players uh, and worked with their incentive structures, basically, and said, OK, we know this is a little bit of a, of a weird setup, but we really do want to include people from other groups. So um, how can we make that happen? And it turned out the answer was essentially nice uniforms <laughs> with their names printed on the back. And so and this was really in a, a lot of times you you learn. The, the most interesting stuff you learn when running a study is not the necessarily the outcomes you set out to learn about. And this was one of those instances for me. Um, so in these places where you have social distrust, there's a reason why these groups don't already get together. It's not happening on its own, even though it would be better for everyone if it did. And one of the reasons is, you know, that is the distrust. That is the problem. So you need that kind of nudge to get over that initial distrust to even be able to participate in a mixed program. And so in this case, that's, that, was called, that was new uniforms. Was there anything else alongside the uniforms? I know you, you sort of touch on this in one of the papers, mm-hmm. but what else was, was needed to get communal buy-in from beyond the teams? Sure. Uh, so I think the fact that um, initially, so for the first wave of the leagues, we were working with this local NGO, which was itself affiliated um, with one of the uh, local churches. So this was really huge. So I think the, the, the role of norm leaders is very important in um, endorsing or just approving intergroup interactions in general. Uh, so you don't want to be like the only person who like who signs up for a mixed team and then everyone's like, whoa, you betrayed the community or something. So the fact that we had these like religious leaders who, who were on our side and who uh, actually helped us to facilitate the game. So we were playing a lot of the games on church fields. So it was a very clear message from this institution that people respect, like yeah. these these leagues are OK. Uh, we know there's like mixed uh, there's mixed participants and it's OK. So I think that that was uh, also went a long way. And how did you secure the buy-in from the uh, from the churches and the organisations? Was it purely that they could see the the normative good of of bringing disparate communities together? Uh, I'd say that's a part of it. Uh, the pro- probably the bigger piece was um, that they they can see that there's a lot of unemployment and people just uh, not spending their time in the most productive ways yeah. <clears throat> as a result of that unemployment, especially young men. Uh, so having this kind of productive, uh, organized environment where they can play, where they can play football and a kind of, uh, even though it's an amateur level, it was a pretty professionalized league and it was really well attended. And uh, in general, it was a big social focal point in the community. So I think that even even if they had good reasons maybe to distrust other communities, um, having being able to offer like a productive program like this at a pretty high level of quality uh, to young men from the community, I think kind of overrode the the other concerns. Okay, I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So what are the what are the main findings that you got out of this then? So I looked at a range of attitudes and behaviors um, for up to six months after the intervention ended. And what I found was that playing on a mixed team 
made you much more likely to um, sign up for a mixed team next season, to be training with people from other groups six months later, uh, and to vote for someone not from your community to receive a sportsmanship prize. Um, And obviously you can't vote for someone on your team. Uh, It also made you uh, substantially more likely, so if you want to know the exact number, it was 0.63 standard deviations, more likely to to believe that coexistence is possible. What I didn't find is that looking at these uh, other outcomes that don't just reflect how you feel about the guys you met in the league or maybe in your neighborhood, but more broadly towards strangers from the outgroup, So I measured this in two ways. Uh, I measured it first by tracking coupons that were used at a restaurant owned by members of the other community in Mosul. Uh, So I tracked whether people were actually getting over these problems of social segregation and are you more likely to visit a city that's dominated by people from the outgroup. And I did this using these coupons. So that was one measure. And the second measure was, uh, are you more likely to attend this mixed social event that's open to people uh, from from different communities um, that's that's in the neighborhood. So those are my two measures of how comfortable are you with strangers from the out group, and I did not really see much of an effect there. So for me, uh, I take these findings together and I interpret this as, as saying that contact uh, in these, at least in these extreme kind of post-conflict settings, contact is effective at improving relationships toward people who you know, so weak ties from the outgroup, so peers, acquaintances, friends, but it's less suitable, at least in a way that I can detect, at improving those relationships and extending them towards strangers from the outgroup or like generalized trust. Um, so that's my main finding. And uh, I tie this back to this weak ties literature by Granovetter and um, and try to make sense of this as, as maybe understanding one important limitation of contact. Fascinating. Really, really interesting. And I think there are some serious, uh, serious takeaway messages that we can we can derive from this. If if you were to try and boil it down into to a couple of messages for peace builders, say in in other parts of the world, trying to to do similar types of things and and improve intergroup relations what would you suggest so i would say um i would say three things the first is that positive intergroup contact does work at improving these secondary relationships so even if we're not like fixing all the world's problems and we're not improving generalized attitudes toward that group even improving those relationships with peers and acquaintances and people in your neighborhood that's really important. Uh, and we know that from a range of other literatures, like these secondary relationships are really key for social trust and it's worth doing. Mm. Um, so that's my first message is even if you don't improve generalized attitudes and, and generalized prejudice, maybe but try to build those community, build, build that sense of community anyway. Uh, and even if it seems hard to do, it's, it's doable. Uh, this set in, in some contexts anyway. Uh, the second thing I would say is um, that the buy-in from these norm leaders is really important. Uh, so not all contexts are ripe for this kind of intervention. You might have place, uh, cases on the one end, which is re- re- really positive, uh, where they don't actually need an intervention like this, like where intergroup relations are pretty good. 
On the other hand, you might have a situation where intergroup relations have deteriorated so much that it's actually unethical or unsafe to to bring groups together. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to do the groundwork and the qualitative work and the field work to know the difference between these different settings. And then you have a place that's right in the middle. And a lot of places in the Middle East fall under this category where people technically live together, but they're really socially segregated. They don't like each other and they distrust each other, but they could be nudged to have positive interactions if you have the right buy-in and if you have the right incentives. So I'd say to, to really think carefully about what your context looks like to see if this is possible. And the third and last thing I'll say is that uh, a lot of these sports for peace or sports for development programs, and you mentioned rugby in South Africa being one, most of them come with this big red label kind of saying we are a peace program. And like this, they're very explicit about the aims of the program. Uh, On the one hand, this is great because it's very honest with participants about what the goal of the what the goal of their programming is. On the other hand, and this is something that's kind of what I'm uh, I'm exploring in my other research to be able to really pin this down. But my suspicion is that this label of we are a peace program is can turn a lot of people off potentially. Um, So one guy who I spoke to, for example, in Iraq, uh, who himself was Christian, said this phrase interfaith tolerance uh, has done more to make people hate Christians in Iraq than anything else. Like, I think there's a sense of like these platitudes have um, gotten very dull and people are really are used to hearing them, but they've lost their meaning. And so maybe branding, uh, branding yourself as being one of these like interfaith programs, you may potentially be excluding some people just who are, who are kind of, um, who don't find those messages appealing and it might be, you might be better off just marketing it as being a sports program where one of the secondary aims is mm-hmm. building community. That's really interesting. And yeah, I can, I can see why that would be hugely important. Do you think, and my final question, Selma, we've taken up so much time and I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by all of this. Do you think that this, this would work equally well between say, um, sect-divided communities? Or is it, is it something that's perhaps slightly more suited to, um, to tensions between different religious groups, sort of interfaith rather than intrafaith? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so in Iraq, I, I looked at this between uh, various Muslim and Christian communities, uh, I'm doing a similar project uh, in Lebanon where we're looking at this divide between Syrians and Lebanese. So that's a totally, they're mainly all of them are from the same religion. So it's a different kind of cleavage, more of a migrant native cleavage. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the question is more like, why do you, why do we think that this type of prejudice that is sectarian as opposed to other types of prejudice or distrust, what is unique or different about that kind of prejudice? Um, and how should that affect this process of contact leading to positive relations? So I would actually push back and say, when we just kind of zoom out, the the types of sectarian prejudices that are that we see in the region are not necessarily different from like racial or ethnic or other kinds of cleavages, in terms of how we should expect them to be affected by positive contact. Um, it might be that they're more entrenched. 
Uh, and so we need a, a bit more, maybe these in- interventions need to be a bit more intense. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any reason to, to think that this shouldn't work with those kinds of cleavages either. Um, as long as these other conditions are being met, like it's not totally, you know, you have some endorsement from communal authorities um, from both sides. So it might be harder, for example, to achieve that criterion in some instances. Sure. Um, but I'll just end by saying that this, if we just look at conflict, whether it's sectarian or not, uh, it has these two levels of structural and grassroots and structural is like, you know, what the leaders are saying, this like segregation uh, policy. And at the grassroots level, we have like everyday interactions between human beings. And it, you kind of need an interaction between those two levels for for peace to happen, yeah. to, to really boil it down. So contact and positive contact is one of those grassroots interventions that that is seems promising. But you do need like we do need like this interaction with the stuff happening at the structural level. Um, or else all of these effects will probably disappear. So I'd say to think about sectarianism uh, as unique insofar as it might create a different set of institutions and structures mm-hmm. um, that might limit all, all of these positive effects that we could see, or the opposite. Maybe it would actually allow those positive grassroots effects to flourish. Fantastic. So much to think about and, and so much to reflect on. And, and I look forward to talking more with you in the future, Salma, about how this all plays out in, in the Lebanese context and what you find there. But before then, I must thank you uh, deeply for taking time to do this. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've got so much to reflect on right now. But it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you about the work that you've been doing and, and how it's having such a, an impact on the world around us. Well, thank you. That's really big praise. I hope the rest of my research is, uh, can, can be similarly useful. I'm thank sure you for having it me. will be. It's been a pleasure, Salma. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.